you have your Bible, let me invite you to take it and turn to uh, the seventh chapter of Daniel once more, uh, Daniel chapter 7. You know, the right to rule as king has been the occasion of many bitter and bloody conflicts down through human history. Uh, royal families have gone to war with each other to, uh, to fight and vie for the crown. Uh, kingdoms have been divided. Citizens of the realm have often had to choose sides. One such example from history uh, came about in England way back during the Crusades. Uh, King Richard the Lionheart waged war against the Islamic armies of Saladin. And while Richard was off, really fighting for the recapture of Jerusalem, uh, his brother John became a usurper and sought the throne of England for himself. Well, upon learning what John was up to, Richard raced home, but as he made his way across Europe, he was captured by Leopold V of Austria, and he was held for ransom that was really three times the amount of his kingdom's annual income. So everyone in England at that particular time had to choose sides. John offered Leopold half as much money to keep Richard in prison for another couple of years so that he would have time to consolidate his power over the realm. Meanwhile, Richard's mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, uh, began raising money to rescue her son and have him restored to the rightful throne. It was a conflict for the kingdom, but eventually Richard won out. But while the while the kingdom was in dispute, while the throne was up for grabs, it would seem, the people had to choose which man they wanted as king and just how much they were willing to sacrifice for the cause. Now, we face a similar choice when it comes to the kingdom of God. And the choice that stares us all in the face is this choice. Will we submit to, will we honor God's true and rightful king or will we become a usurper? Will we uh, place our allegiances elsewhere? Which kingdom will we choose? And so the subject of the kingdom, this is the subject of Daniel chapter 7. Now, we've been in this chapter for a couple of weeks, and I've tried to show you that Daniel 7 really provides us with a big picture view of Bible prophecy. Uh, it's the story of history from Daniel's day leading all the way up to the final world empire that will be in power at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ one day is going to come and he will establish his reign in the literal sense. He will establish his kingdom upon the earth and the saints will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. I believe that's what scripture teaches Alistair Begg has said that this is an apocalyptic passage. It's a prophetic passage. And those apocalyptic passages of Scripture are those that draw back the curtain and allow us to see the ultimate triumph of God that has already been achieved. And it's so very important that we understand that as the people of God, especially as we're living in difficult times and under difficult circumstances. And so Daniel is given the privilege much in the same way that John was given the privilege in the Revelation of having the curtain of history pulled back, as it were, in which he is given a glimpse of the future. 
And the content of the vision that Daniel is given is found in the first 14 verses of chapter 7. And uh, we've already looked at that. Uh, The explanation of this vision or dream is given in the second half of the chapter, and that's what I want us to look at here in just a moment. But by way of review, you remember the vision itself. Uh, In verses 1 through 14, Daniel says that it was in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, that he had a vision. He had a dream, and in this dream, Daniel saw various beasts began to emerge from the sea that had been stirred up by the wind of heaven. And each one of these beasts were different. Uh, The first one was like a lion uh, with eagle's wings. Uh, The second beast was like a bear raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth. The third beast was like a leopard, but it had four wings and four heads. The fourth beast is most terrifying of all, Daniel said it was different from all of the others that he saw. He describes it as being terrifying, dreadful, uh, has great iron teeth. It devoured broken pieces and trampled everything in its wake. And this fourth beast in particular was different because it had ten horns. And Daniel says as he considered the horns, there was another horn that came up, which he described as being a little horn, before which three of the others were plucked up by the roots. And Daniel says that this little horn had eyes like a man. It had a mouth that spoke great things. And then you get to verse 9, and the scene shifts as Daniel sees thrones put in place. The Ancient of Days takes his seat, and all of this is revealing of the omnipotent character and the sovereign rule of Almighty God. Uh, He's eternal, he's holy, he's perfect in power. And all of this uh, Daniel sees in contrast to the beastly, imperfect, short-lived kingdoms and empires of humanity. Now later on Daniel is told that the beasts that he saw were symbolic of four kings or kingdoms which will emerge out of the sea of humanity. And uh, the fourth beast will be a final beast on the earth when the Son of Man comes with all the clouds of heaven and he comes to establish his kingdom upon the earth. Now, in particular, Daniel draws our attention to a figure that he describes as being one like the Son of Man, mentioned there in verses 13 and 14. Daniel sees this Son of Man figure coming with the clouds of heaven. He comes to the Ancient of Days. And to this Son of Man is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him. Daniel says that his dominion is everlasting, it shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Now that's the dream, that's the vision. Now notice in verse 15 where we'll pick up as Daniel's going to be given an explanation of all that he saw. Uh, The Bible says, beginning there in verse number 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So, So time out for just a second. Notice that Daniel is a participant at this point in his vision. Much in the same way that the Apostle John was a participant in his vision that he received when on the Isle of Patmos. 
Daniel has the same reaction that John had there too. Uh, When John uh, saw a vision of the Son of Man, Revelation chapter 1, he describes all that he saw. John's reaction was to fall at his feet like a dead man. Daniel here has a similar reaction to what he's been shown. Uh, He's disturbed deep within his heart, his spirit. Uh, He's alarmed. And so he begins asking this angelic being in his vision for an explanation about what he saw. So he told me and he made known to me the interpretation of the things. Now notice the interpretation begins in verse 17. Uh, He's told that these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and the mouth that spoke great things and seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And so he says to Daniel in verse 23, as for this fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which will be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. Which, by the way, you ought to compare this to what John writes in Revelation 13, where he describes this same final world power, this beast empire comprised of a a ten-nation confederation that comes together, and there's a world leader who emerges stronger than all the rest, puts down three. He's the little horn of Daniel 7. Elsewhere in Scripture, he is known as the Antichrist, or the man of sin, or lawlessness, as the Apostle Paul describes him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So Daniel's being shown the situation of things globally in the last days. And so this little horn, verse 25, will speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. They shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years or 42 months as it's mentioned elsewhere. So the reign of this little horn, this antichrist figure, is going to be very short-lived. And he's destined to have a confrontation with the Son of Man who's going to be returning on the clouds of heaven. Verse 26, the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion will be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. 
And then Daniel concludes in verse 28 by saying, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now I want to speak to you from this subject this morning, your kingdom come. Now you'll recognize that phrase from the Lord's Prayer. It's how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. In fact, it sort of embodies, it's the very first petition in the model prayer itself. Thy kingdom come. What do we mean as believers? What did Jesus have in mind when he told his followers to pray that the kingdom would come? Well, if you want to know what he had in mind, it's right here recorded in these 28 verses in this seventh chapter of Daniel. Now, you'll notice that the word kingdom is used 12 times from verse 14 all the way through verse 28. And so the emphasis in this chapter is on the coming kingdom of the Son of Man, and it's a kingdom that will replace all others. The overarching concern in this chapter uh, is to focus our attention on this ages-long conflict, really, between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. And that's largely the storyline of the Bible, is it not? Uh, Really from Genesis 3 all the way through the end. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 describe creation and the creation account and how God established uh, his kingdom upon the earth in a perfect sense, and Adam was uh, a co-regent. God gave Adam dominion over all of creation and the created order. But of course, Adam's sin... Uh, that dominion was lost. Genesis chapter 3, there's now a curse and the presence of sin and everyone who's ever been born has been born in sin and that dominion has been lost. And so the storyline of the Bible is this conflict that exists between kingdoms. The kingdom of man, the kingdom of uh, this world, or the devil. There's the conflict between two cities that occupies the storyline of the Bible. Uh, Largely, it's the story of the conflict between Babylon, which represents the pride of man, and Jerusalem, which represents the city of God and the city of God's people. So two kingdoms, two cities, conflict, this is the story of the Bible. Now, when we refer to that word kingdom, what are we talking about here? Well, in the Old Testament, the word kingdom means ruler or dominion. Uh, It refers to a realm in which royal authority is exercised. In fact, it's used this way at least 136 times uh, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, The Greek word, the Greek equivalent in the New Testament is used 154 times, and it's a word that involves both the realm itself and the right to rule that realm. So when you take it together, the biblical concept of kingdom involves at least three essential elements. There's a ruler who rules. You can't have a kingdom without a ruler. Uh, There's a realm in which that ruler exercises his authority. You can't have a kingdom without a realm. But you see, beyond the ruler and the realm is the inherent right of that ruler to rule his realm. Because someone who's a ruler that doesn't have a right is a usurper. Just like John was a usurper in England. So a kingdom involves a ruler who rules, a realm to be ruled, and a right to rule that realm. All of those elements are necessary uh, for one to have a kingdom. So you need to keep all this in mind when you read these verses in Daniel chapter 7. Because the kingdom of God is the central theme. 
And the question that's being raised is this question, to whom does the kingdom rightfully belong? To whom does the kingdom truly belong? That's the question of Daniel 7, but largely that's the question of the entire Bible, is it not? That's been the conflict uh, throughout human history. Who has the right to rule the realm? Well, the question is given its answer here in Daniel 7, and the answer lies in this son of man figure that Daniel describes. I want you to notice a few things from these verses. Number one, notice with me what I'm calling the promise of the kingdom. And the promise of the kingdom has been given to the saints of the Most High. You'll notice that that promise is stated explicitly there in verse 18. And so Daniel responds to this vision sort of with fear and and, uh, this reverential awe. He wants to know what his dream involved. He's given this explanation that it all has to do with the kingdom of God as it's coming to overthrow the kingdoms of men. These beasts that he saw are four kings or empires that will arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High are the ones who receive the kingdom. They're the ones who will possess it forever. In other words, history is full of usurpers to the throne. Uh, History is full of those who would usurp the throne and want to usurp the right to rule the realm, but only one qualifies to be the rightful ruler of the realm, and it's the Son of Man. It's the Lord Jesus. Now, I've already told you that Daniel 7 corresponds with the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw back in chapter 2. That image was made up of multiple types of metals from gold, silver, bronze, legs of iron, The feet were made up of an iron-clay mixture. In that vision, Nebuchadnezzar saw a stone that was cut out, but not by human hands. And with momentum and force, that stone struck the image at its weakest, most brittle point, the feet of the image. And upon striking the image, Nebuchadnezzar saw that that image was completely obliterated. Now, if the image was symbolic of man's kingdoms, uh, what did the stone signify? Well, you remember in the dream that Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar that the stone is the kingdom that God himself will establish at the end of the age. And so in that sense, the stone is a symbolic picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Son of Man that Daniel sees here in his vision in chapter 7. So the stone of Daniel 2 is the son of man and his kingdom described in Daniel 7 who's given dominion, glory, and an everlasting kingdom. And he alone has the right to rule the realm. And it's all a prophetic picture, folks, of how Christ is coming in all of his glory to obliterate Satan's attempt to rule the world. You know that throughout human history, that's what Satan has tried to do in every age of human history? to dominate this world system. But the kingdoms of this world are destined for conflict uh, with this stone, with this son of man. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw how the stone became a mountain that filled the whole earth. And so also will the kingdom fill the earth, the kingdom of Christ. And so Daniel sees one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven He has inaugurated his kingdom. He's ruling now in the hearts of his people. 
By virtue of his first coming where he suffered for sin, made an atonement for sin, died on the cross, rose again from the dead, resurrected, he's ascended, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of power. All things are in subjection to him underneath his feet. His kingdom is advancing in the spiritual sense. Which means that we as the church are not fighting for victory this morning, but rather we're on a mission, we're fighting from a position of victory. Victory that's already been supplied through our conquering king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, there's still a future element to the kingdom. And that future element will one day be seen as Christ returns from heaven to the earth in his second coming, and he obliterates the kingdoms of man, the empire of Antichrist, and establishes his literal kingdom upon the earth. And in that time, all of the promises that God made to David and all of the promises that God made to Abraham and all of the promises that God made to Israel will be fulfilled in the kingdom, the millennial kingdom that Christ is going to establish upon the earth. And so every yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecy in Scripture ultimately points to this truth, the kingdom. It was the theme of John the Baptist's preaching. The Bible says John began to preach, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus began his ministry on earth, he preached the same message. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 10, when he sent his disciples out, uh, he told them to preach. He said, as you go, declare the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is describing the sequence of events and circumstances of the last days, where he describes the signs of the times, wars and rumors of wars and political conflict and nations in upheaval, celestial signs and all of that. In verse 14 of Matthew 24, Jesus says that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. The gospel of the kingdom. So, so what is the gospel of the kingdom? The gospel of the kingdom is the announcement that the king has come that the king has made sufficient atonement for sin through his death, his burial, his resurrection, that people can be saved, forgiven of their sin, and become citizens of the kingdom. <laughs> That's the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. Now the beauty of this in Daniel 7, Daniel says the kingdom has been promised to the saints of the Most High. No matter how bad circumstances get around us, no matter the, the thick of political conflict that we may find ourselves embroiled in, the kingdom has been promised to the saints of the Most High because the kingdom belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And, and listen, the church is a vehicle for the kingdom. We're citizens of the kingdom. A kingdom focus uh, must characterize everything that we do. We've got to be kingdom-minded men and women. The truth of the kingdom ought to impact the way that we go about our jobs. The truth of the coming kingdom of Christ ought to impact the way that we behave in our homes, the way that we shepherd and lead our families. Would to God that we would raise kingdom-minded sons and daughters 
who understand that their true significance in life, it's not found in their grades, it's not found in their sports, it's not found in activity, but listen, you wanna find significance, you'll find it only in as much as you understand the kingdom. That's the message of Jesus, and that's the message of the Bible. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. It's interesting in that passage, the context of that passage, he's dealing with worry and how we just tend to worry and fret over the details of life. What we eat, what we drink, the things we put on our body. He's saying, listen, as citizens of the kingdom, know that you live your life completely differently than, than those that don't know God. Instead of seeking the, the, the things that the world is seeking, as citizens of the kingdom, we're to seek first the kingdom, which means we're to seek first the rule of God in our hearts and in our lives. It's the righteous rule of God in our hearts as his people. And the time is coming in the future when it will be established in a physical sense on a throne as Christ is ruling and reigning over a tangible kingdom upon the earth. That's the prophetic hope of the people of God. And so what began in Jesus' first coming, what he inaugurated, he's going to consummate one day when he splits the eastern sky wide open and he returns. Zechariah 14 says on that day his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives will be split in two and then the Lord God will come and all his holy ones with him and the Lord will be king over the earth. That's what Daniel sees here in this wide sweep of history in Daniel chapter seven. So the kingdom is promised to the saints of God. Now there's a second thing that I want you to notice, not just the promise of the kingdom, but notice what I'm calling the paradox of the kingdom. And the paradox of the kingdom is the suffering of the saints. How is it that the kingdom is promised to the saints of the Most High, and yet at the same time, those saints are going to suffer? And in particular, they're going to suffer under the reign of this fourth beast, and this little horn figure who's the Antichrist is going to persecute the saints of God. He's going to persecute Israel in the last days. I'm not going to get into all the specifics of this just yet, but what I want you to see is that this fourth beast embodies a spirit of antagonism and opposition to the kingdom of God, and that's going to be the prevailing attitude during the last days. And so there's this picture of this final world kingdom that's going to be destroyed when Jesus Christ returns in all of his glory. So this beast with 10 horns, it's this description of a final world power that will be in place, yet future. You look at verse 24, the 10 horns out of this kingdom, 10 kings will arise, another one will arise after them who'll be different than the former ones and will put down three. This is the little horn that Daniel refers to back in verse eight. It had eyes like the eyes of a man, a mouth speaking great things. It's a description of this coming world leader in the last days. And the idea is he's going to have an attractive quality about himself 
with which he's going to command the attention and the allegiance of the, of the world. He's going to speak pompous, blasphemous words against the most high God with his mouth. Verse 25 says he'll wear out the saints of the most high. He'll seek to change the times and the law. They'll be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, now think about how this is shocking to Daniel. Uh, just when he's anticipating the deliverance of the kingdom, as someone who's lived through the exile, as someone who has lived through the destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering of God's people among the nations, the captivity of the Jews in Babylon, when it seemed like the kingdom of God had lost out, the kingdom that had been promised, now he's being told that conflict is going to persist as far as God's people are concerned. It's going to persist in world history until the end. Until Jesus Christ returns, Daniel is told we can expect this kingdom conflict in the world. This idea of a world utopia, that the world is going to be getting, getting better, an increasingly better place. What world are you living in if that's what you believe? This is where the 20th century sort of blew post-millennialism out of the water. This idea that the, that the world was just going to gradually become a better place as more Christians populated the earth. And as more Christians populated the earth, then this was what's going to usher in the kingdom of God. Well, then the 20th century happened. Two world wars. Millions upon millions of deaths. Holocausts. Genocide. We look at the political situation and the landscape of the world today, nations in conflict, there's a movement afoot among the nations to unite the nations in one government. A globalistic type of an, you hear it all the time. It's the ambition behind global organizations like the World Economic Forum. Which by the way, just this week, I saw the World Economic Forum posted their Predictions for the next 10 years of civilization. By 2030, they predicted that all property would be shared, not owned. So they envision a socialist utopia for the world. Their second prediction was that the United States would no longer be a superpower. I think it was their third prediction. They predicted that there would be a coalition of nations that would sort of spearhead the government of the earth. Y'all don't believe we're living in the last days. You need to get your head out of the sand. The spirit of Antichrist is alive and well and at work in our world. It has been since Jesus ascended to heaven. John, the apostle, said that many Antichrists have already stepped onto the scene. What is the spirit of Antichrist? It's the spirit of Antichrist that denies the Son, that denies the kingship of the Son of Man. That is the spirit of Antichrist. Antichrist, it means to be in the place of Christ, one that opposes Christ, one that sets himself against Christ, one who sets himself up as a Christ, as a Savior. You know, the world has had multiple would-be saviors throughout human history. And humanity is all of the time looking for someone who will save us from our peril. 
But ladies and gentlemen, it's the message of the Bible and it's the message of Daniel 7 that there is only one Savior for humanity. And it's this Son of Man that Daniel sees to whom is given the kingdom. So conflict, it's, it's the paradox of the kingdom. God's people can expect conflict. Jesus said as much. He said, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. John 16, he said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. You want peace? Then you're only going to experience peace in Christ. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. But he says, be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. In the world, as a follower of Jesus, you're going to have trouble. You're going to experience pressure. We're going to experience pushback against our faith. But that's no cause for alarm. It's no cause for despair on the part of God's people. We can be of good cheer because Christ has overcome the world. The king in his first coming has disarmed He's disarmed spiritual powers that would set themselves against our God. Listen, in his death and in his resurrection, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. And the greatest paradox of history is the triumph of Christ upon the cross. The world looks at the cross and the world says, what kind of king can deliver in this way? What kind of king gets himself crucified? God said, this is the only way that it can be. This is the only way that humanity made in my image can be saved. It's through the suffering of the Son of Man. But in his suffering, Jesus has disarmed powers. That's exactly what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. So that means that he's already won the day. And those who are in him, we share in his victory. That's why we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. I'm not looking at a bunch of wimps this morning. I'm not looking at a bunch of spiritual paupers. I'm not looking at a bunch of folks who are defeated. I'm looking at those who are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ who loved you, who gave himself for you. That's... That's the inheritance of God's people. Man, isn't that just such an encouraging word? So no matter how bad things may get in our world, we can be full of joy in the knowledge of the fact that Jesus has overcome the world. I would compare it to a city that is under siege. The enemy has surrounded the city And the enemy won't let anybody leave the city. Supplies within the city are running low. Citizens in the city are fearful. But in the dark of night, there's a spy who has broken through enemy lines. He's come to the city to announce to the people that in another place, the enemy command has already been defeated. The leaders of enemy forces have already surrendered. Therefore, the people living in the city no longer need to be afraid because it's only a matter of time until the besieging troops receive the news and lay down their weapons. I'm telling you, in a similar way, we look around at life, we may feel like the enemy has us hemmed in on all sides. We may feel like we're surrounded by the forces of evil, sickness and death, sin and wickedness. 
But you see, the truth of the matter is, the enemy has actually been defeated at Calvary. And so things are not the way they seem to be. And it's only a matter of time until it becomes clear that the battle is really over and Jesus is king. And that's why the gospel is an announcement. It's a declaration of what the, what the king has accomplished. Wow. And so listen, the triumph of this son of man and his people, this is the greatest paradox in history. When things seem to be going in one direction, a stunning reversal happens. Which, by the way, isn't that the story of the Bible? I mean, isn't that the story of God's people as they've been led out of Egypt? They've got the Red Sea, which seems to be an impassable obstacle. They've got that in front of them. They've got Pharaoh's army behind them. What about Gideon and his 300 men facing off against the entire army of the Midianites? Or what about a shepherd boy with just a sling and a stone standing before a giant who has a javelin, a sword, and a shield? Or Elijah, who's a single prophet of God, standing off against 700 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Often it seems like God's people are always up against innumerable odds. But just when things seem bleak, just when it seems like things can't get any worse, God breaks through on behalf of his own. And here's the news that we need to be reminded of as the people of God is that the kingdom of our God advances not through our strength but through our weakness. The kingdom of God does not advance through the strength, the ingenuity, the cleverness, and the schemes of God's people. The kingdom of God advances through the suffering and the sacrifice of God's people. Which is why COVID-19 may in fact be one of the greatest things that's ever happened to the church of Jesus Christ in the United States. Because for, for months, Sunday mornings have had dwindling attendance, dwindling offerings, dwindling numbers, And looking at that at the surface, we could get really discouraged and think, man, it just seems like the forces of evil are prevailing against the people of God. Until you remember the paradox of history that God's people, the kingdom's already been won. The battle's already been fought. The war has already been won. We may lose battles here and there in our lifetime, but the war has been fought, the war has been won, the kingdom belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his people. So the paradox of the kingdom, the promise of the kingdom, one final thing that I'll mention and I'll finish with this, it's the possession of the kingdom. The possession of the kingdom, this is the hope of God's people, the hope of the saints. The apex of history I mean, the apex of evil, the apex of opposition that's leveled against King Jesus, it will come under this fourth beast and this little horn antichrist figure who will be sort of the embodiment of evil, 
in the last days. But he's going to be destroyed. His kingdom's going to be very short-lived. Verse 27 says, The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion shall serve and obey him. So possession of the kingdom. Now here, here's, here's the interesting thing as I read this text. You look at what's said here at the end of the chapter. You compare it to what Daniel said early in the chapter. In verses 13 and 14, he saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, approaching the ancient of days. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that's everlasting. Now, in verse 27, he's told that the kingdom, the dominion, the glory, it's given to the saints of the Most High. So how can the same thing that's said of the Son of Man also be said of the saints? The answer lies in the fact that one like a Son of Man, he's related in some way to the saints of the Most High so that they share in his dominion. Now remember what I've already told you about this Son of Man figure. This is the last Adam. This is, this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate as the perfect man who's come to recover all that was forfeited under the first man, Adam. He's come to recover the dominion that Adam forfeited because of his sin. He's come to get right what Adam got wrong. Adam was a historical person, our first father, from whom the human race has descended. But he was a person whose actions carried serious consequences for others because his sin, his disobedience, plunged the entire human race that would follow into sin and death. This is Paul's point in Romans chapter 5. In and through Adam's fall, sin and death came to every person who has followed. The ultimate threat that you're up against as a person today, it's not a virus, it's death. It's sin. The wages of sin is death. Where did that come from? It can be traced all the way back to Daddy Adam. So his actions had consequences for a whole race that would follow. Well, it's also the same thing's true of the Son of Man. All of those who are in Jesus Christ share in his success. Which is why, did you, listen, oh, this is good. Did you know that believers are referred to as those who are in Christ in the New Testament around 250 times? Christian is mentioned just a, a handful of times, a couple of times. But believers are referred to as those who are in Christ more than 250 times in the pages of the New Testament, dominates the writings of the Apostle Paul, his epistles. He always addresses believers as those who are in Christ. See, that's the secret for victory right there, to be in Christ. So you come to Daniel 7, and you see the kingdom belongs to this son of man, but at the end of the chapter, the kingdom belongs to the saints. How is that possible? It's because the saints are in the son of man. There's this union by which we've been brought into vital union with Christ. And what's true of Christ now is true of those who are in Christ. 
That's why Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. You think that you don't have what it takes and you're weak and you're impoverished and loving your enemies, how is this even possible? Listen, left up to yourself, it isn't possible. But when you realize who you are in Christ, you realize that's where the power is. It comes through Christ in you. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So how does this impact my life and my future? I'll tell you how it does. To be in Christ, folks, is to be given all that Christ has been given. That's good news, isn't it? I remember reading a story about a man who had a son, and this son was the apple of his eye. This man was a collector of fine art, and he, along with his son, traveled the world to collect fine pieces of art. And in time, the man had just amassed this massive collection of fine paintings. Well, the time came when this father received word that his son had to go off and fight for their country in wartime. So he kissed his son goodbye. Within just a few months, this father received word that his son had been tragically killed while saving the life of another soldier. Well, you can imagine the grief that this would cause this father. It wasn't too very long after that that one day the man heard a knock at his door. The dad had been living kind of like a hermit, a recluse, since losing his son, but he goes to the door, went to the door, and he discovered that there was a soldier there in uniform. And the man introduced himself to the father and said, uh, Sir, you don't know me, but I'm the man that your son, he died while saving my life. And I've just come to tell you how appreciative and how grateful I am, and I've come to give you a gift. And the father noticed that the man sort of had a package under his arm. The two of them went inside the house, and the man unwrapped the package. And the soldier was explaining to this dad that he knew the, the dad was a collector of fine art. And what this soldier had done with an amateur hand, he tried to paint a picture of the man's son. Now, it was not a professional piece by any stretch, and you could tell it. But when the father looked at that painting, he did see the likeness of his son, brought tears to his eyes, and he offered to pay the soldier for the painting, and the guy said, no, listen, I wouldn't take a dime for this. This is my gift to you in appreciation of what your son did for me in sparing my life by giving his. Well, this father, he got older, and all of the art dealers in that particular area began to gather together. When the man died, there was an auction that was held of his estate and all of his fine pieces of art. Art collectors from all over that part of the world came. And as the auction began, the auctioneer began by saying, it was in the will of this father who died that the first piece that is auctioned off is this painting of his son. This amateur painting. A lot of the art dealers that had gathered there began 
snickering among themselves and said, who wants to purchase or bid on that amateur piece of art? Give us the expensive paintings. I mean, bring out the Van Goghs. Bring out all of the exquisite art. That's what we're here for. But the auctioneer insisted, no, it's in the will of this man that this be the first piece of art that is auctioned off. Who will bid? No one offered to bid anything on the piece of art except an old man in the back. And the old man in the back, he had been the gardener for the family estate, and he raised his hand and he bid $10 for the painting of the man's son. Upon hearing no other bids, the auctioneer brought the gavel down and declared that the auction was over. Now you can imagine that all of those art dealers who were there, they were livid. What do you mean the auction is over? We've not even got to the good stuff yet. And the auctioneer then told the crowd, he said it was in the will of the Father that whoever gets the Son gets it all. The world looks at King Jesus they see the cross, and they see the weakness, and all of that, and they don't understand it, and the world is looking for a strong man. But it's in the will of God the Father that the one who gets the Son gets it all. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, then listen. There is an inheritance out of this world that is yours. The kingdom belongs to the people of God because the kingdom has been given to the Son of God. Do you know Christ as your Savior? If not, then listen, if you don't know Jesus right now, where do you, I encourage you, repent of your sin. Confess your sin and your great need for Christ. Believe that he died on the cross for your sin. That he was buried. That he was raised to life again in victory and power. And confess him as your Savior and Lord. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Lord, in Jesus' name, we're so thankful for the truth of your word. And God, as we look around at society and we look around at our nation, we're grieved in so many ways, Lord, by what we see. Agendas that are pursued that we know that are not in keeping with your word. Lack of character that's so evident in our politics and leadership these days. But Lord, help us to remember as the people of God that the kingdom belongs to Christ and to the saints of the Most High. No matter how difficult things may get for the people of God here, we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from a place of victory. And that's good news. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.